This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture and I'm Kelly Anissa. From suing for pay parity to getting their own jerseys, we take a look at gender discrimination in football and uh, what is being done to tackle these issues. Joining me today are sports lawyers Richard Wee and Leslie Lim. Welcome to the show, Richard and Leslie. Hi Kelly, Yeah, it's good to be back. Hi Kelly. Um, so tell us about the history of women's football. Like, How has it evolved to the football we know today? Well, Kelly, if I can offer uh, some thoughts on that. Uh, for quite some time, I think many people were not aware that actually uh, women's soccer was banned at one time. I think FIFA was not uh, uh, in support of it until mm. in the, I think in the late 80s, uh, or should I say mid-80s when the uh, trend changed. And in 1991, finally uh, FIFA organised the first uh, women football, uh, Women World Cup, which was very successful. And since then, it's held every four years. Um, I think the next tournament is uh, coming up soon, this year. Yep, June and July. Mm. Okay, that's the Women's World Cup. Yep. Okay, so um, give us an overview of women's football. How successful or prominent is it on the world stage today? Let's look at it from four angles. Number one, uh, the participants itself. Uh, it, there used to be 10 to 12 teams taking part. Now there's 24 teams playing in the tournament. And uh, there's actually a proper qualifying uh, tournament. That means more than 24 teams are trying to get in into the World Cup, number one. So in terms of team participation, country participation, there is definitely an increase. Mm -hmm. Number two, viewership. Uh, 100% increment from 1991. Uh, I, I don't have the specific statistics at the moment, but I recall reading uh, there is a huge increase of uh, viewership. So every World Cup soccer uh, or football for ladies, is uh, uh, millions of people are watching the game. Mm -hmm. Thirdly uh, is the uh, amount of sponsorship. Uh, what was meant uh, in the early days was a fairly trivial sponsorship. Uh, now sponsorship goes into millions of US dollars uh, invested into the tournament and most of the major uh, usual uh, uh, team players of uh, sponsorship, uh, like, you know, if I can name them, uh, Adidas, Nike, Coca-Cola, they are all in. The fourth one is the amount of players uh, playing. So uh, what was usually a European and uh, American uh, um, game, mm -hmm. uh, China has taken women's soccer very seriously. Uh, Asia has come in very strongly. Southeast Asia, not yet, uh, but it, it's coming up. Uh, and the entire Europe has a proper... Uh, ladies League, there's even a proper Champions League style uh, in Europe uh, for football, uh, soccer. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, the, but the centre of women football at the moment looks like it's in, uh, in the USA. And what are some of the challenges women face in this sport? Well, the first and foremost, um, this perception of, of gender discrimination has actually existed since ancient days. Uh, Pierre de Coubertin, the father of modern Olympics, uh, was once quoted saying that the inclusion of women in the Olympics would be impractical, mm -hmm. uninteresting, unesthetic and incorrect. Uh, to the extent that in the early uh, 1900s, I think at first women were actually... Uh, the, there was a uh, the number of sports that women were competing uh, in the Olympic Games was probably about two or five in comparison to the men, which had like 95 categories for them. 
And uh, it, it was even to an extent where women were actually excluded from the uh, International Olympic Committee. Uh, but today, it has been like a 120-year battle to get to that, you know, equal uh, uh, status in the sense that I think women make up for almost uh, 45% of the participation in the Olympics. So that's one challenge, uh, equal uh, number of sports and categories in, say, a major uh, championship such as, such as the Olympics. And I think the most uh, evident challenge uh, that's faced by the uh, female athletes uh, that's very significant and out there uh, that the society realises is how much pay the women mm. athletes are getting. So if you have a look at Forbes uh, 2018 list of highest paid athletes, in the top 100, there's actually no women in there. So you have right at the top, you have Floyd Mayweather, uh, the, the boxer. He earns something like $285 million. After him, you have Lionel Messi, footballer, $111 million. And the highest paid female athlete on that list is Serena Williams. She earns $18.1 million. And that is actually only about 6% of Mayweather's earnings. And just to give another football analogy, we have uh, Marta De Silva. She's actually the highest goal scorer in the uh, Women's FIFA World Cup. She earns something like 500000 a year. Yeah. And in comparison to Lionel Messi, that's like 0 0.4, 0.5% of Messi's, uh, what Messi makes and mm -hmm. what Messi takes home. So that, that itself like, can give you a, a comparison of how much the men are taking home in comparison with the women. And, and building on from what Richard was saying earlier, clearly this uh, uh, issue or topic about the involvement of women in football uh, has caught the attention of FIFA to the extent that they have actually launched a uh, strategy for women's football where they want to be able to measure uh, the success of their campaign and they have certain targets and certain pillars that they hope to achieve over the next couple of years which include things like um, having like 60 million uh, girls and women uh, playing football. They want to double the number of youth leagues out there. They want to have a, a certain number of women sitting in their executive committee and I think the most significant one that we'll probably see very soon is they want to try and hit 1 billion uh, broadcast viewers uh, at the upcoming FIFA World Cup. So, yeah. We, when you spoke about the discrimination, why do you think it's so prominent, especially in this spot? So, uh, well, Kelly, what's happening for football at the moment? Let, let's call it football. Huh? Americans call it soccer, but <laughs> we all here call it football. Yeah. For football, um, the... Uh, American women football team recently initiated a suit uh, against the uh, US uh, Football Federation. Um, uh, long story short, they are asking for more money. Mm. And uh, not just more money, but equal salary to their male counterparts. And because the case has now gone to the uh, American courts, we are keeping a very close eye on that case to see uh, the contentions and the matters raised. So that, that makes this issue become very, very relevant now uh, because whatever the decision of that court will have massive repercussion for world women football mm. all over the world. Huh? Uh, and I think not only for women uh, football, but for other sports, um, uh, maybe hockey, you know, ladies hockey, uh, ladies um uh, rugby, you know, there, there is a, many people don't realize that there are ladies rugby team. Mm. Uh, these are issues which uh, this case will, will will have effect on. We'll keep an eye on it. Um, just for context, uh, what are some of the factors that determine pay in pro sports? Um, 
generally speaking, uh, of course, one is uh, the fame of the game. Uh, I think the biggest games in the world now um, is golf, tennis, uh, football. Uh, in America, will be basketball, uh, their version of football, uh, baseball. These are sports with really huge uh, fame. Mm. So when the the game itself is famous, uh, the top players naturally draw quite a number of uh, support from sponsors and from the team themselves, and they will then be able to gain high salary. Then... Um, Another area, of course, will be the uh, amount of uh, sponsorship money. Some games are generally not that popular, but have uh, massive sponsorship in it. Um, so that is an, another factor. One classic one you can see now is uh, golf. You know, not not everybody in the world plays golf, uh, but the price money for golf, the professional players uh, in in golf, male and female, they earn substantial amount of money. Mm-hmm. So. It's also depending on the sponsorship, the amount of sponsorship. So, like for back to the the case study for today, the uh, American women football team, mm. uh, their contention is that uh, look, you know, my game attracts a lot of viewers. I am the world champion. I'm the best player in the world. I just happen to be a girl. Mm. Uh, why is my male counterpart earning more than me? Uh, that that is where they are arguing about, and there is an American Act of Parliament involved, Equal, uh, Equal Pay, Pay Act. Act. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's that's all these are factors which take into account on how much a pro player can earn. Uh, we'll talk more about the U.S. Women's National Football Team uh, suing the U.S. Soccer F- uh, Federation, uh, but before that, um, can we talk about how the salary cap works in pro sports? It, it differs from sports to sports, Kelly. Uh, it differs. So, for example, in the English Premier League for uh, men's soccer, men's football, there is no cap there. Uh, effectively, any player can earn whatever money the club can afford to pay that player. Mm-hmm. So, there is no cap. But in uh, certain sports like uh, the American NBA, uh, uh, the baseball and uh, their national uh, hockey and even the American football, there is a cap. Um, and how they work is that usually depends on um, uh, how much money the the, the team is earning. Uh, then the the sports commissioner will decide uh, how much you can pay uh, as a top dollar for your top player, and generally how much all the other players will gain. Uh, this is to ensure that all the players are treated fairly, mm-hmm. and there's no prima donna, no no nobody getting more than everybody else. Uh, usually that's how it works. So there's some kind of policeman, usually is a sports commissioner. Uh, but unfortunately, it's hard to give you a specific framework because different sports have different structures. So Yeah, but on the other end of the spectrum, so the salary cap is on the, uh, the top end of the spectrum. On the bottom end of the spectrum is uh, minimum wage. So a lot of uh, athletes actually, uh, well, fight or, or try to ask for at least a basic level of minimum wage. But again, all the factors that Richard raised just now about uh, the kind of sport, the sponsorship, the viewerships, all that definitely come into play. Mm. And it's actually very evident if you uh, look at the uh, type of sports in the US. So the uh, NFL, the MLB, uh, the hockey and, and NBA, their minimum wage, you're looking at uh, probably uh, half a million a year. And then in comparison, you have the MLS, which is the major league soccer, uh, where the minimum wage is something like fifty or sixty thousand uh, dollars. Mm. And in comparison with that, the women's league is 
minimum wage is about 16000 So it's less than half of what the men's football are taking, and which mm-hmm. is way lesser than what all the other sports uh, are taking home. So I think there was even a couple of years ago, the uh, NBA players were in a lockout with the league owners, uh, and the league just couldn't go on because there was just a lockout. They couldn't agree on, on minimum wage. There was arguments about salary, etc., etc. Uh, but in the end, all of that was resolved. So that's just another the other end of the spectrum. Hmm. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be looking at social activism in sports and the United States national football team suing the U.S. Soccer Federation uh, with allegations of gender discrimination. I'm speaking to sports lawyers Richard Wee and Leslie Lim, and we're talking about gender discrimination in football. You're listening to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture, and I'm Kelly Anissa. Joining me today on the show are sports lawyers Richard Wee and Leslie Lim. Uh, we are talking about discrimination in football, uh, women's football in particular. Let's talk about the trend of social activism in sports. Uh, so can we expect uh, sports lawyers to um, have their hands full now? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, social activism, sports... Um, about, I think, two or three years ago, a group of athletes uh, form, uh, came together and uh, formed a group and they uh, issued a universal declaration of athletes' rights. So it's something like uh, the universal declaration of human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the same thing there. And I think the base is, if I'm not mistaken, in the States, in USA again. Um, so that's one element of uh, sports activism. Um, there's also uh, sports activism in esports, for example, where uh, we've noticed a, a recent uh, contention there that, that uh, there's harassment in sports, particularly against lady players and lady streamers. Uh, so the ladies are inverted commas fighting back. Mm. And of course, uh, recently there's this. Uh, what's the name of the athlete again, uh, Leslie? The, she's now being tested for. Oh, Caster Semenya. Yeah, I always slipped her name. So her, mm. her case is being. Caster's case is being investigated, uh, where apparently she's too manly, you know. Uh, so many activists are coming up and say, look, this is, this is not right. Mm. And recently uh, in Australia, there's some players who are uh, uh, detained in the Middle East. Uh, there were some human rights issues pertaining to the person's uh, uh, rights. But that is technically not really about sports. He just happened to be a football player. And there, there was an issue, a conflict of uh, nationality between Australia and the Middle East country. So, But there is, there is uh, this uh, growing activism in sports, which is good. I, I'd like to quote uh, two other examples of how uh, social activism is, is really a trend mm. uh, today. And that's a reason why, because it's actually effective. So one is the uh, US Women's uh, National Soccer Team. Before they started this suit that we're going to talk about later, uh, they actually came together and launched an online campaign called Equal Play for Equal, equal Pay. So the hashtag is uh, Equal Play, Equal Pay. Mm-hmm. And uh, the campaign was uh, to highlight and raise awareness uh, about the inequality between the men's and the women's professional soccer uh, careers, particularly in terms of the uh, different wages that they were taking home. Uh, and secondly, the treatment that they were receiving in terms of the training ground that they were being provided. So the men would be given training grounds where there were natural grass, which is uh, 
more comfortable to play in, I would say. Okay. Whereas the women were had had to train on what we call turf grass, where there was a lot of bumps and dirt, and uh, there were pictures going on online of how their you know their legs were all like bruised just from training, but they were willing to do it for the sport that they loved, and uh, it's not all about money. I think the the women's team have come out to say very clearly, this is not just about dollars and cents, but really about respect, that the amount of effort that the women are putting into training is no lesser than what the men are putting into training. Mm. Uh, and the results actually show for it. The other example uh, of social activism, activism I'd, like to, I'd like to share is I really encourage everyone who is listening to this podcast, uh, have a look at Nike. Uh, you can go to their Instagram handle, it's just at Nike. And they released an ad, just I think just about a month ago, and it's a great ad. Mm. So it has Serena Williams, the very famous tennis player, uh, being a narrator. And she says things like, you know, when we uh, become emotional, people call us, you know, dramatic. Uh, when we become, uh, we, we shout out uh, our anger on the court, people say we're hysterical. Uh, when we perform too well, people say there's something wrong with us. And once upon a time, nobody would ever think of the idea of a woman completing a marathon. Nobody would ever think of the idea of a woman coaching an NBA team. Uh, nobody would think of the idea of a woman competing in a hijab. Or, and then she draws the example back to herself, nobody would actually imagine a tennis player winning 23 Grand Slams, having a baby and coming back to do more. And, you know, people say we're crazy. Let's show them what crazy is all about. And I think it's really, uh, you know, hit, hit, a, hit a heartstring of a, of a lot of people mm -hmm. that can connect to it. So that's just some examples of, I think, social, the trend of social activism that we're seeing more and more uh, on social media these days. So the U.S. Women's National Football Team um, uh, sued the U.S. Soccer Federation with allegations of gender discrimination. So this is um, three months away from the World Cup. Can you just give us a little bit of a primer of you know, what led to this? Right, so um, you're right uh, that you pointed out that it's three months before the World Cup. Uh, even the timing of the filing of the suit uh, is something that's being debated by people. People are saying, why did the, women's, uh, the U.S. women's uh, soccer team choose to file the suit three months before they're, you know, going up to defend their title. Mm. But in any event, uh, the complaint was filed on the 3rd of March uh, in the Central District of California. And the plaintiffs in the suit are basically 28 women from the uh, U.S. Women's National Team. And the defendant in the matter is basically the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation. And in a nutshell, basically the women, uh, they are actually suing and complaining for violation of two, two acts. One is the Equal Pay Act and one is the Civil Rights Act. And the, the crux of their uh, complaint and their suit is, as what I briefly mentioned earlier, they are performing the same job responsibilities as the men. They are participating in the same tournaments, they are doing the same training, yet their pay is less. Mm. And their performance is actually far more superior. And the reason why I think this has become such an issue is because um, the U.S. Soccer Federation has actually claimed that its mission is to promote and govern uh, the sport of soccer in the U.S., uh, to make it the most excellent sport, etc., etc. And one of the things that's mentioned in their mission is gender equality. But 
these ladies are now saying that uh, the Soccer Federation has failed to promote that gender equality. Um, so pay uh, is one thing. Uh, the other thing, as I mentioned earlier, is actually the uh, treatment that they're they are receiving. So it stems from things like uh, the training grounds that they're being provided, uh, even to things like um, how they travel for competition. So it's a comparison. Do they have to travel commercial or do they have to travel chartered flights? So the men are given more chartered flights mm. and the women are, are forced to fly uh, commercial where they are not as comfortable, there's more risk of like bags getting lost, missing connecting flights, uh, they can't get rest before training, etc, uh, etc. Et mm -hmm. So it's definitely going to be a landmark case. Very, very interesting. It's a 25-page complaint. I think defence hasn't been filed just yet. Uh, certainly one to look out for in the next coming months. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I'm just curious. What uh, you know, what kind of technicalities, uh, you know, the logistics do they have to work around to achieve equal pay? But what, what were the factors involved here? You know, in them being paid differently. Well, that's a that's a good question, Kelly. In fact, um, I, I think I'll just say it. I think I think to put it bluntly, uh, the U.S. Football Federation uh, run mostly by men. Mm -hmm. um, at one time, I think they were all men. I think mm. so. I, I think it was only natural that that group of men uh, obviously didn't really respect the women's uh, football team. Uh, that was the history, the past, the legacy that they had to carry. And unfortunately, that uh, practice went on despite more and more ladies getting involved. Uh, I think they, they went on doing that, number one. Number two, there was a contention at one time that uh, the women's team was not able to attract enough uh, commercial support compared to a men's football team. So in America, apparently, uh, and not just America, to be fair, all over the world, the male football team uh, somehow attract more uh, sponsorship, mm. or so they say, uh, they, the Football Association will say. Uh, but the um, uh, American women football team uh, managed to show otherwise. They, they, they are able to show that, no, I attract more viewers than, than, than the boys. So um, these are... These are I think the background issues, legacies which uh, started many, many decades ago, uh, which now the women football team are unfortunately still going through it. Lah. Can I just add one more point? Actually, it wasn't just the women football team which started. A very well-known American uh, football player, her name, very cool name if you ask me, her name is Hope Solo. Mm -hmm. uh, she actually was the first, uh, among the first, in fact, to sue US FA and uh, her suit was last year in 2018 on, on fairly similar points but in a personal capacity and she's also fighting still that case so uh, now we have the, the whole team filing in a suit so it's it, things are changing you know and I, I hope the American courts will give them due justice yeah and I think what's really interesting about uh, this, this new suit by the women's uh, soccer team is that they have tried, I mean, this is what's written in the complaint, uh, and I'm just quoting from the complaint mm. that's been filed. Apparently, uh, the, the team has tried to negotiate many times yeah, uh, with many the times. Soccer Federation on, you know, the equal pay and the equal treatment, etc., etc. But the Soccer Federation has yet to come up with any uh, legitimate reason or, or any reasonable explanation <laughs> Uh, of why they've opted to take this route to give the women less pay and, and a different treatment. To the extent that the women's national team actually even uh, proposed a revenue-sharing 
uh, uh, model. Because, you know, as Richard said earlier, the argument is that it's not revenue generating, etc., etc. So this revenue sharing model that the women's actually put forth was a, I'm willing to share the advantages, but I'm also willing to share the risk. Mm. So if you get less revenue, I'm happy to take home less revenue. If you get more, I also want more. But this model was actually rejected. Okay. Uh, by the Soccer Federation. And uh, it's really interesting. The complaint even goes on to detail about uh, this This thing about the revenue sharing actually stems from the fact that the Soccer Federation spends less resources. I can't wait to see how they're going to prove this. Um, spends less resources promoting the women's games. And because there's less promotion, there's no announcement, no sufficient notice, people don't know that there's a game going on, it then affects attendance. Mm. Then ticket prices get affected, hence revenue gets affected. So it's like a whole, you know, catch-22 or, or, or a domino effect. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, that revenue sharing argument is definitely going to be one that's going to be heavily argued in this case. You know, talking about their revenue. So, um, you the U.S. women's team, uh, they won the World Cup in two thousand and fifteen, yep. right? And you know, in the lawsuit, and uh, I mean, it was the most uh, watched football game in American TV history with an audience of approximately twenty three million viewers. Yeah. So and uh, yeah, you know, according to the lawsuit, there was, uh, as you said, substantial revenue generation and profits for the Red Federation. And in fact, uh, they, they did mention that the women earned more in profit uh, than the men's uh, national team for the period covered by the lawsuit. Um, so if they are bringing in more profits and revenue, it really does beg the, uh, the question of what was the justification behind the pay disparity, as you've mentioned. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a mystery. Um, uh, but to be fair, we, we do not know how the USFA works, to be fair to them. Uh, so it's, I think any comments we make will not be uh, fair. But uh, look, from outside looking in, it does look weird. Because mm. the American uh, ladies fo football team is not a normal team. Um, they, they are the best in the world. Um, and even if they don't do well, they're still the top four team in the world, uh, other than Norway, Germany and um, China. Mm. Uh, these are the usual powerhouse of uh, America, a women football team. So if we in the, if we look at the men's side, it's always Brazil, Germany, you know, uh, now it's France. But uh, for women uh, football, it's America is uh, always there, you know. So that's that's why we, it's it's a bit odd to see them struggling to get recognition. I don't know the answer to your question, but I think <laughs> we can look at the stats and and hope hope that some reasonable explanation will come up uh, in the near future. The uh, women's national team is claiming. Uh, in this suit that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. that they've actually managed to turn uh, the FA's, uh, the Soccer Federation's loss, mm -hmm. a financial year loss of, I think, half a million to a profit of like 17 million. So that's one. They, they claim that they managed to turn uh, by virtue of the viewership uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Another thing that uh, I can't wait to hear the explanation for <laughs> is the women's national team got... $1.8 million for winning the World Cup, the last World Cup. And that $1.8 million had to be shared between 23 players. The men, in comparison, failed to get into the round of 16 in the World Cup, but yet got $8 million mm. to be shared among the men. And they even got millions of dollars for every point that they scored in the World Cup. So that's quite a big disparity. Yeah. Uh, and it would be... I, I really can't wait to see the FAs uh, or the Soccer yeah. Federation's defence. Another thing to let you know, Kelly, uh, I mean, many 
I think many people are not aware of the uh, grassroots of uh, American uh, soccer. For now, now, just go back to the word soccer for a while to avoid confusion. Mm-hmm. The the grassroots in America for soccer football, the ladies are playing football at very, very young age. Um, it is very common in American schools to see a under-15 soccer match played mix boys and girls playing against each other. Uh, it is very common. So uh, that, that's why it's, uh, it is, is unsurprising why the, eventually the American uh, women's football team took this action. Because I, I think they're they are slightly, well, not slightly is the wrong word to use, they're really unhappy. Right. That, you know, yeah. It's been going on for some time, yeah, I suppose. It's been going on some time, maybe. And the national teams in Norway and New Zealand are paid equally um, as their male counterparts, right? So, yeah. you know, ha- um, how does their situation differ from the US team? You know, what made it possible for them to achieve it? Good question. Um, maybe the the their local football association in those two countries uh, look at things differently. Mm. Mm. Could stem from their culture as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what do you think this lawsuit means for the Women's World Cup that begins uh, June 7, right, in Paris? Yep. Well, uh, if I just speak purely about the tournament first, before I hand over to Leslie about the uh, women's team. Mm. Defect. Purely on the tournament, I don't think it has any effect. Uh, everyone's waiting for the tournament. Um, uh, I think the we, we, are, we are looking forward to see whether uh, America can can defend the tournament again. Being an Asian, I hope uh, China will do well. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, anybody from China, I hope, uh, or anybody from Asia will do well. But uh, uh, I think that's the, the the fact is the whole world is waiting for tournament number one. Number two, FIFA is going on. It's like uh, if you look at the way FIFA is preparing for a tournament, it is uh, WIP. Um, uh, Work as usual, you know. Let's uh, just waiting for June, July to come, and then we'll host the tournament. So it's uh, just another tournament for them, another major tournament for them. Yeah. But I think for the women football, uh, well, I I think the suit itself will take some time to mature. Uh, it's I don't. It's not a situation where we will get you know a decision for the suit by July before the World Cup. Uh, the twenty eight complainants, the twenty eight plaintiffs have. Uh, demanded for a jury trial. Mm. So, of course, the whole uh, legal process will need to take place, uh, pull together a jury panel, etc., etc. Trial will have to go into place. Uh, if you ask me, I actually think the women's team will be more driven than ever uh, to perform even better, to, to prove yeah. uh, and to win and, and to show that um, their success is not a, a, a something by chance, but something that they have truly worked hard for and therefore deserve that respect that they are seeking very quickly, I'll just say my pick is Japan for the World <laughs> Cup. <laughs> but can I add in, uh, Kelly, that, that um, one of the reasons why uh, this topic to me is important for us to discuss here, notwithstanding we are not Americans, is that I hope this uh, uh, issue, this issue of discrimination against uh, a gender will be addressed in Malaysia and in Southeast Asia too. Uh, because uh, I'll say it here, I think maybe some of the sports association would be happy with me saying this. But the fact is, there is discrimination in sports in Malaysia and in Southeast Asia. Um, we hardly hear about women football here, for example. Um, yeah. Our women, uh, our top games like badminton is all fo- focused on men. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas our ladies are not seen to be taken seriously. Even though we have some really good women badminton players. Um, 
to be fair to, for example, for badminton, to be fair to BAM, I know for a fact that they take the women's badminton team very, very seriously. But they are one of the few associations doing that. What about the rest? Mm. So um, I, I hope that uh, this discussion will be picked up. Uh, I'm sure some of the association may not be happy with uh, me saying what I'm saying. But put, I mean, put your hand to your heart and ask yourself, is it true that all athletes, male or female, are treated equally in Malaysia? I think the answer will be no. And that's something we have to address. Mm. Uh, I agree with Richard. And I guess my take on this is that I just hope that the approach and perception can change and we don't view it just as gender-based, you know, male, female. Why can't we actually view it in in the sense that these are just categories being offered in a particular sport? I feel that it's no different than a sport offering a category for a master's category or say a junior's category, mm. you know, and then you have a male category, female category and a mixed category. So my hope is that it's just that society's perception and approach on these things will change and evolve over time. Nike revealed the new home and away uniforms uh, for 14 out of the 24. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, women's teams. And for the first time since the brand began working with the Women's World Cup tournament in 95, each of them was made specifically for the women's teams and not, you know, as extensions of the kits made for men. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what, uh, you know, about the gendered parts of the jersey. Why, why you know, why does it work and why, why is it significant? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, uh, and this ties in with what we just said earlier because um, in Malaysia and Asia, for example, uh, a lot of ladies' sports, they wear a, what I would call a hand wear. Oh, the guys are wearing this jersey, so uh, we'll let the girls wear, but we'll make it into a ladies' cut, you know. Whereas um, in, in uh, what Nike just announced is this, that, for example, uh, Nike focuses on the major football team. Let's talk about football for a while. So for national team, Brazil gets the best jerseys most of the time, you know. And then the ladies team will just wear whatever the men wear. So what now Nike has done is that no more. I will design a special jersey for the ladies. That's correct lah. Why must the ladies wear what the men wear? Mm-hmm. What fits the men doesn't fit the, 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 the ladies, you know. Um, and in terms of commercialization, if you really want, you want to sell your jersey, don't you think it's nicer if you design something meant for ladies, for ladies, by ladies? The ladies will buy. So and, it makes more sense. And yeah, you know, speaking about that, you know, why does this uniform work? How does it make them feel better? Because I remember reading about something about the ponytails and how it helps them. So maybe you can explain <laughs> a little bit about why um, that is significant. Uh, to me, it's about pride. I think uh, many people underestimate the uh, value and importance of jerseys uh, for team events, for example. Uh, if you have a jersey specially designed for you uh, and you wear it out, for example, during the opening ceremony or tournament or opening of the match, it's, it's, it's a really uh, chest-thumping, heart-bursting kind of uh, atmosphere. You, 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 we are very proud because that jersey is designed for you. Um, so I, I think this is significant. So I, I think it's a good forward. Uh, this, this, this should be done for all sports uh, jerseys and, and, and kits. I think when a certain kit is designed for a lady, the, the kit or the jersey, will take into account the character of a person, the lady. The way she walked, the way she lift her hands up. Um, the cut below the armpit, for example, for certain sports will be different. So I think uh, the way in, this, in the question that you post, Nike has approached it, is scientifically correct. It, takes into, it also takes into account the modesty of the lady. 
that uh, uh, some of the men jerseys doesn't doesn't cover. Yeah, and I think that if the cut you know is suitable for them, uh, it gives the ladies comfort, and with that comfort. Uh, brings confidence and with confidence it then affects their psychological aspect and then that of course also has been scientifically proven to then have an Im- a positive impact uh, on their performance and I think the other angle is probably maybe it gives them a sense of identity I suppose that they're not just wearing something that's you know uh, hand me down yeah, yeah. <laughs> hand me down from the men right and even Adidas announced that sponsored players on the team uh, that wins the FIFA Women's World Cup this year will receive the same performance bonus uh, payments as their male counterparts. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, so, you know, um, I, that's a very significant move because there's always this argument about the commercial interest when it comes to women's football and that it's not as commercial as men's sports, like previously said. So when you have big brands like Adidas taking a step like this, then what do you think is holding back the national governing bodies? Uh, I suppose, uh, to be fair, things are changing. We are living in a time for sports, uh, especially. we are living in a time where things are changing with regards to gender discrimination. Uh, Ten years ago, if you tell me that uh, Adidas will give the same price money for a man and woman, I'll, I'll laugh and i say, nah, it won't happen so soon. But it's happening now. So, yeah, I, I think with all this uh, occurrence, I'm qu- quite sure, not just the US FA, I don't want to just attack them. I think all the FAs in mm. the world will start looking at this and say, yeah, we'll treat everyone equally. Yeah, There's definitely been a shift, uh, not just for football. I think uh, a couple of years ago, there was a uh, movement in the tennis world where the women were also demanding for equal price money yeah. for Grand Slams. Yeah, Wimbledon and all yeah, that. Yeah, Wimbledon and all that. And it was to the extent that even the male tennis players were coming out and, and agreeing with that uh, by virtue of the fact that, you know, they're not playing uh, any lesser, mm-hmm. uh, they're training the same amount of time, etc., etc. And why is it that uh, the women's finals always have to be on a Saturday, whereas the men's final has to be on a Sunday. Why can't they be on the same day, mm. uh, etc.? And then earlier I was mentioning about how, you know, it's been that 120-year battle for Olympics to get to where it is today. Similarly, with the Wimbledon prize money, only last, uh, I think it was only last year where Wimbledon started offering equal prize money between the men and women. And that has also been a very long journey for them. And, you know, like uh, uh, speaking about Adidas and Nike, you know, how, do you think they, these major brands can influence sports policies? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, these two brands not and, and many others, huh, like uh, uh, Puma, Under Armour. I'm just talking purely about sports brands. I'm not here to promote any of the brands, mm-hmm. by the way. Uh, but Puma, Under Armour, they all influence the way all the other sports industry reacts. And, um, and I'm very, very certain that this will, um, this will spread through and eventually it will change. And of course, being a Malaysian, I hope change will come here too. You know, that will be good for us. Yes. Yeah, so it's also a form of sports activism. It and, is. Yeah, and so how do you think this will influence the fans? Because the, like you said, the argument is that the um, women's football, for example, doesn't generate enough fans and, you know, in terms of their revenue. Um, do you think it's a slow changing of the mindset? Yeah, it is. And, and uh, unfortunately, sports reflect community and the world at large. I think the world at large, there is a general discrimination against ladies, uh, whatever people want to say, there mm-hmm. is. So um, the, uh, the earlier, the faster we address it and try to change it, it would be better for sports. I think women, on behalf of all the women, I hope I'm speaking for you. Um, <laughs> I think women want 
to be viewed for their competence and for their their individual character rather than by virtue of just their gender. Mm. And uh, I think we are shifting towards that direction. What is your final message? Well, I'll let Leslie have the last say, but let me just say this. Uh, so not just for f- uh, uh, football, for soccer, but I think, I hope that this case will help all gender discrimination cases. An example is esports, uh, where, for example, in esports, in my view, a lady player is as good as a male player, uh, if not better. And it is one of the sports where a man and woman can compete like Dota 2, for example, they can compete with each other without having a separate event for men or women. So these are the kind of cases I hope will change the way the whole world look at sports uh, and, and hopefully uh, not just for football. I think that over the years, I mean, all the examples that we've given, the Olympics, the tennis and all the different sports, uh, it's always been campaigns and whatnot. But now it has led to this major suit uh, being filed and one of the uh, reliefs that the women's national team, the US women's national team is seeking for is a judgment that the US Soccer Federation's uh, actions and policies and practices are discriminatory in nature. So definitely, I think the uh, decision of uh, the US court is going to have an impact. Of course, there will be appeals thereafter, etc., etc. But all this shows that shift in society from that early start where Pierre de Coubertin said that, you know, inclusion of women is inappropriate. Uh, here we are today, hundred over years later. Well, thank you for coming on the show today, uh, Richard and Leslie. I've been speaking to sports lawyers Richard Wee and Leslie Lim and we were talking about discrimination in women's football. If you've missed any part of this interview or any of our previous Live and Learn shows, you can download the podcast on our BFM app, on Spotify or also on our website. You've been listening to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.